Bible, and I hope that you do, please turn with me to the Gospel of Luke. The Gospel of Luke. We will uh, look at verses 8 through 17 this morning. Luke chapter 1, verses 8 through 17. We'll read all 17 verses, uh, set it in context for us, but we will, in fact, look at uh, just focusing in on the, the latter nine verses here of Luke chapter 8. Uh, Luke chapter 1, verses 8 through 17. Um, and so uh, Luke chapter 1, um, we'll start in verse 1 and we'll go through verse 17. If you are physically able to do so, I will ask that you stand one more time for us as we seek to honor God's word. Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, hear the word of the Lord given to you and I this morning. For as much as many have taken in hand to set forth in order, in order a declaration or a narrative of those things which are most surely believed or fulfilled among us, even as they delivered them to us, which from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word. It seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first to write to you in order. Most excellent Theophilus, that you might know the certainty of those things wherein, or literally in which, you have been instructed. There was in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, a certain priest named Zechariah of the course of Abiah, and his, or Abijah, and his wife was of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord blameless. And they had no child because that Elizabeth was barren, and they both were now well stricken or well advanced in years. And it came to pass that while he executed the priest's office before God in, order, uh, in the order of his course, according to the custom of the priest's office, his lot uh, was to burn incense when he went into the temple of the Lord. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the time of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zacharias saw him, he was troubled, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Fear not, Zechariah, for your prayer is heard, and your wife Elizabeth shall bear a son, and you shall call his name John. And you shall have joy and gladness, and many shall rejoice at his birth, for he shall be great in the sight of the Lord, and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink, and he shall be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb." And many of the children of Israel shall, be, shall he turn to the Lord their God, and they shall go before him in this, and he shall go before them before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Let's pray, Father. We thank you for our time. Now we ask your blessing to rest upon us as a congregation as we seek to be obedient and to live. Uh, for your glory and honor in all things. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Thank you. You can be seated. So last week we looked at the silence of God. This week we actually look at um, God speaking. God finally speaks. He's, as we noted last week, God has been at work. I mean, there's been no doubt that God has already been at work throughout the time of uh, the, what is known as the intertestamental period uh, between the close of the Old Testament and now the beginning of the New Testament. God has been clearly working. God has been clearly at moving. But the question that comes to us, I think, via this, this encounter between uh, um Zechariah and Gabriel um, is the question, um, how much or does it really pay to be faithful to God? 
Well, the people of Israel had, in fact, been long waiting to find this out. They had waited upon the, the promises of God. God, as we looked at last week, we looked at uh, Malachi chapter 4, and we saw that Malachi closed with the promise that the angel Gabriel is ready to repeat to Zechariah the prophet, or Zechariah the priest. And so we know that, that God has, in fact, uh, is in fact ready to let his people know that, yes, it does in fact pay to be faithful to the Lord their God. God is getting ready to answer them. They had, uh, they had been waiting patiently and they had been waiting upon the Lord. And I would say to us who are in Christ that those of us who continue to wait patiently and faithfully upon the Lord have the same promise for us that God will not disappoint his people when he has made precious promises to us. And so ultimately, um, it is uh, God who rewards the faith of his people. And so this morning, let's look at the idea, this idea of God speaking, God at long last speaking. Remember, it has been 400 years since God has spoken through the prophet Malachi, and it has been over 500 years since an angel from God had even shown up and had spoken to the people of Israel and so this has been a long time building and a long time in coming. And so as we look at God speaking, let's first look at an unsuspecting man of God here in chapter 1, verses 8 through 10. We see this unsuspecting, unsuspecting man of God whose name we find out very quickly and very early on is the name Zechariah. I don't know why Zechariah was named this. Perhaps he was named this because uh, named after the honor of the prophet Zechariah who was killed by the Israelites in their unfaithfulness toward the end of the Old Testament uh, uh, period of time. We know that the Lord Jesus tells us this, but yet there were many Zechariahs, so he was one among many. We know that he was one among between eighteen and 20,000 priests who ministered unto the Lord. And it's, we are told here in chapter 1 that he was chosen by Lot. That is, that it was simply his turn. Now, you need to understand here, this was a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity that Zechariah, the prophet, uh, priest, I keep wanting to call him prophet, but priest, um, had at this point. Uh, Zechariah, this would have been, he would have only been chosen, a priest would have only been chosen for this opportunity once and never allowed to do this again. As a matter of fact, it was, divinely, it was a divine opportunity that God had given him because many, pro, many priests were never even chosen to do this. Um, and so Zechariah, by this time, had never been, he's an old man, and so he'd never, he had not been chosen to do this uh, in the entire time when he came of the age of 30, when he began to be able to help around the temple and uh, began to uh, be, uh, uh, be active in temple worship or in temple activity as a priest. We know that during that time, up until this time, he's probably now in his 60s at this point, late 50s, early 60s probably, and by this time, uh, Zechariah had never been chosen, and yet here we are, this older brother who is, uh, we're told, advanced in years, again, not told how often or how, how much advanced in years, but we find this very unsuspecting priest chosen what seems, by what seems to be pure luck, but in actuality is divine providence at work. Uh, it's amazing that this man, I think, by and large, I think he's a man that we can all appreciate because he was one of eighteen to 20,000 other people, one of many other people named Zechariah, and yet it was this Zechariah God chose to speak to and to use he and his wife named Elizabeth to work through and to, to use for his glory at this point in time. In a world where we can often feel lost, brothers and sisters, we need to remember that God knows our name. 
and that God has not forgotten us, and that God is not a God of the masses. God is the God who is personal. God is personal, and he knows us by name. He knows our heartaches. He knows our troubles. He knows the issues, and he knows them well, and he has not forgotten us. And as he has shown to Zacharias, he will show to Zechariah, the priest, very clearly. It is an interesting opportunity that this brother has at this point. But he offers something here. We're told that he goes into the temple. Uh, we know that all the people, when the priests would go into the temple to offer the sacrifices or the, the, the incense in this, in this moment of time, right, since the, uh, uh, by this time, right, this would have been after the exile and, and um, the Ark of the Covenant had been long lost. Uh, if we believe uh, Jewish uh, tradition by Jeremiah had hidden it, uh, who knows what had actually happened, but uh, it is lost nonetheless. And so the Holy of Holies sits empty and yet, Outside of the Holy Holies, in the holy place, there sits, or there stands, this place uh, of incense, uh, also the table of showbread, the menorah, and all of this would have still, the, the temple furniture would have still been there, minus the Ark of the Covenant in the most holy place. But he was chosen at this point in time to serve a special blend of spices, right, called incense. Uh, and, and we know we have, actually have the recipe that, that God actually forbids the nation of Israel, except for the priests and the Levites, to have possession of. We find that recipe back in, in Exodus 30, verses 34 through 38. If you want to turn there, we can see where God provides for, for, this, uh, for, this, for the nation of Israel. He, he explains to them um, what is going on here. He, he, uh, he reminds them of, of what is to be done. So if you look with me in verses 34 through 38, listen to what it says here. And the Lord said to Moses, take to you, or take sweet spices, uh, and, and, and uh, I'm not going to choose to pronounce these names because I would butcher them, right? So East, East Kentucky pronunciation of these words is not, <laughs> is not great. So these sweet spices with pure frankincense, and of each shall there be a like weight, right? Equal part, an equal part. And you shall make it a perfume, a confection after the art of the apothecary, uh, temp- uh, tempered together, uh, pure and holy and you shall beat some of it very small and put out of and put of it before the testimony of the tabernacle of the congregation where I will meet with you it shall be to you most holy and as for the perfume which you shall make you shall not make to yourselves according to the composition thereof it shall be to you holy for the Lord whosoever shall make like to that to smell thereto shall be even be cut off from his people so this was a special blend that God had personally given. And this was something that God had given to now Zechariah, this priest, to, to offer. The priest would then go into the temple. They would sprinkle the blend upon the golden altar of incense, which was located within the holy place of the, of the temple. And the ritual would literally take place twice a day. It would take place twice a day, once in the morning and again in the evening. And both of them would coincide with the daily offerings of the animal sacrifices. And I'll get to why all of this is important in just a minute. The burning of this actually symbolized something. It actually symbolized, and we'll look at something here in just a minute. Because the Bible actually tells us what it, what it does symbolize later on, both in Psalms and then later in the book of Revelation. We're told what the incense actually symbolizes. But what do, but, but give you the quick answer. The quick answer is simply this. 
It symbolizes the prayer and intercession of the high priest on behalf of the nation at this point, the nation of Israel. And it was an important element in maintaining a close relationship between God and between his people. As I said, the Bible is very clear. So, for instance, in Psalm 141.2, it says, Let my prayer be set before you as incense, the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. Or again, in Revelation chapter 5, verse 8, Now, when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures, and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense. And let's listen to what, listen to what John says here, which are the prayers of the saints. And then again in Revelation 8.34, it says, Then another angel, having a golden censer, came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense that he should offer it with the prayers of the saints upon the golden altar, which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints ascended before God from the angel's hand. And so this point in time, Zechariah's offering of the incense wasn't just offered just simply a pinch of incense. It's burned up smoke and then poof, it's done. He actually, we know, he would actually lay prostrated upon the ground, that's face down upon the ground, fully extended out as he prayed for the people of God. And as he lifted their, them up to the Lord, he would ask God to work and move and to bless them and to cleanse them from their sins and cause them to be a holy people. He would utter all kinds of prayers and requests to the Lord. But notice what the people were doing in response to this. What were they doing according to Luke chapter 1? Well, according to Luke chapter 1, nobody was in the temple except for John, which is, or, I'm sorry, Zechariah, which is why when an angel shows up, Zechariah's pretty excited about it. Because no one else is there. He alone is to be, it's to be in there as the, as the priest who was, who was set to offer this. But the people outside were praying. It's interesting that the priest inside is praying, but now the people outside are also praying. Why? Why would they be doing this? Well, because you've got to remember, the nation of Israel was a, was a kingdom of priests, right? Uh, although Levi, Aaron's, uh, Aaron's um, uh, people, would, his tribe were, were to offer the, the, the high offerings and were to offer those within the temple um, structure, it was still a time for, the, for God's people to gather together. And to pray outside while the priests were performing or the priest was performing his duty or their duties within the temple. But, not, but even more than that, it was, it was possible that they believed that their prayers were more than likely to, heard, to, heard, be, to be heard by God during this sacred time. And listen, we still do this, right? If we're not careful, we can still do this. We can say, hey, so-and-so. You're, you know, I know you really pray. Can you pray for me? As if their prayers have any more influence on God than my prayers. And certainly it's not wrong for you to ask somebody else to pray for you. But at times we can, we can fall into this. And we're told literally from Jewish tradition that the people prayed while the priest offered the incense. And this is, the, this is one of the prayers that were offered by the people, of many prayers that were offered by the people. It's, it's recorded for us. It says, May the merciful God enter into the holy place and accept with favor the offering of his people. And that's exactly what the priest was praying, is that God would, 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 would accept the offering of incense that was given to, and on behalf of the people, to God on behalf of the people. And there is something very noteworthy here, though, if you notice this in the passage in chapter 1, all throughout chapter 1, actually, if you take a notice. Notice how Luke employs the word people here throughout chapter 1. He actually employs a mechanism, a language mechanism that he himself created, that he invented, 
Now, now you might be asking, why, why, like, why, like, what, what is the point of that? Well, listen, listen carefully. The way that he employs people places the emphasis on the declaration of John's birth. And in doing that, what it does is it sets John's birth within the greater corporate context of salvific or salvation's historical work. In other words, everything that is occurring in this passage, from Zechariah's priestly work, to the appearance of the angel, to giving Zechariah and Elizabeth a baby, to the people outside praying, and the John being and Zechariah and Elizabeth being told that their that the son's name will be John. All of it, all of it occurs within the strategic pattern that God is the one who is sovereignly and purposefully going to redeem his people. By the giving of the forerunner and ultimately by the giving of the Messiah, God is going to do this. It is God who is at work. It is God who is going to fulfill his promises. It is God who is the one who is going to be glorified in this. It is not the people. It is, it is not Zechariah. It's not even John. It is the Lord God himself who will be glorified in the work of all of this. And I think it serves as a very important reminder for you and I that as we engage in the mission of Christ to make disciples in our homes, to make disciples in the world, to make disciples as, as, as people come into the church, as new believers come into the church, as we make disciples, that we serve God's greater and grander purposes in this life. Like it's God that is glorified in our work. It is God that is at work. It is God who moves. It is God who saves. It is God who redeems. It is God that we sing to. It is God that we pray to. It is the one that has redeemed us by which we can praise him. This is why to focus on, on simply on ourselves is so wrong. Worship is not for us. It is for the one to whom it belongs. Now, certainly we are recipients of his blessings in worship. But let me show you something else other than a, uh, an unsuspecting man of God. Let me show you this, secondly, a startling appearance of an angel of God. Now look with me here in verses 11 and 12. Look what it says. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And I, I, It's debatable, but I do think that is important, and we'll come back to that. And when Zechariah saw him, he was troubled, and fear fell upon him. Now, why would this happen? Well, why would the angel come and stand at the right side of the altar? You'll probably find a lot of people, some people don't believe there's any significance in it at all, but I will point this out to you. So, as you're looking at the altar of incense in the temple, what is on the right side? What is on the right-hand side? Well, what belongs on the right-hand side and what was on the right side was actually the table of showbread. You say, well, what, was, what does that have to do with anything, right? Well, the showbread was actually called the bread of the presence. And because it was to always be in the Lord's presence, hot, fresh bread delivered to that, and the priests were to eat it at the end of the day, the table and the bread were a picture of God's willingness to fellowship and commune. Literally speaking, he was, they were sharing something in common with God. A feast. A table. Now, for those of us in the West, right, in, in Western culture, 
that, that's not a big deal, right? We have people over to our house, ah, it's no big deal. We go out to a restaurant, ah, it's no big deal. You know, we just eat together. We, you know, we usually scarf our food down, and then it's poof. We're, oh, you know, it's great. Thanks for, thanks for coming. But you have to remember the context of Eastern culture. To share a meal was very precious. It was to invite you into the very sanctuary of, of your inner sanctuary and your trust. And it was a very precious thing. They wouldn't have just come together eating for like 20 minutes and then all went home. It wouldn't have even been like one of our potlucks where everybody comes, maybe we stay for an hour, and then we all go home. This would have been a huge ordeal. This would have been a huge ordeal. Why do I point that out? Because for God in this context to fellowship and commune with his people was astounding and amazing. For God to offer fellowship to his priests was an amazing was an amazing acknowledgement that he wanted them to come and to experience open relationship and fellowship with him and so the significance of the angel's appearance on the right side of the altar i think is indicative of the angel's purpose with zechariah when set in a larger context in a larger frame It's anticipatory of the prophetic and work and ministry, God communing with the people that John will occupy and ultimately is ultimately fulfilled in the work of Jesus Christ in the Lord's Supper. Because for those of us who are in a Gentile context, it's difficult sometimes for us to remember that the Lord's Supper actually occurred within the context of a Passover meal. God communing with his apostles. Pulling any mind here of the angel coming, of, or before the angel comes with the showbread, the presence of God, the, the bread of the presence of the Lord, and the priests communing and eating in the presence of God with God himself. Christ being the ultimate fulfillment of this. This is my body which is given for you. This is the blood of the new covenant, which is given for you. Not that the elements literally become these things, right? We know that. But this is what Christ has said. Christ has said that he has come and he shares with us, even today in the presence of the table that we feast from, Christ is very much at work. But what about Zechariah then? He's, you put it in modern day language, he's freaked out, right? He finds the whole thing a little bit sus, right? And so he begins to fear and he is very surprised. And the sudden appearance is that again, that the, there hasn't been an angel or an angelic experience in the nation of Israel that we are told of in scripture in about 500 years. And for Zechariah, this would have been terrifying. For those of us who are like, yeah, man, if an angel appeared to me, that would be the coolest thing in the world. I don't think you and I have a grasp if that's our attitude of what an angel actually is or does and the terrifying appearance of them in the Bible. Because in the Old Testament, angels were actually described as being terrifying and awe-inspiring beings. For example, when the Lord, when the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon in Judges 6, Gideon was so afraid that he ran and hid in the wine press. 
And Gabriel, and Gabriel is described here as a man clothed in linen whose belt was of gold in verse 19. Meaning that the description of all of this would have been for Zechariah, this angel would have been a powerful and awe-inspiring figure for him and for us. But you also have to remember that as the angel appears, there, there would have been some cultural beliefs in this time. In biblical times, angels were not seen as good luck charms. Like in our culture, it's like you go to some shops, it's like angels here and angels there and angels everywhere. But the thing about them is we have, we have cutified them, right? I don't, is that a word? I don't know. But we have made them like nice little things, right? Like they're like little baby, fat little baby cherub things, right? And it's like, oh, look at that little baby thing. But that's not an angel. That's not an angel. An angel is a, is a, is a spiritual being that is, that is supernatural in nature. It's not above us, but it is certainly existing in a realm that we don't yet know or understand by experience. And so in biblical times, angels were viewed as harbingers of important news, but even more than that, they were also even seen as harbingers of death, which is why, which is why Gideon ran and, and was afraid and why um, Manoah and his wife were like, oh, or Manoah was like, after Samson's parents, you know, after the angel appeared and went up in the fire, of the, he was like, oh, God's going to kill us now. To which his wife says, I don't think God would have appeared to us if he's going to kill us. But this would have been a cultural, this would have been certainly a biblical and cultural belief. Their appearance would have evoked great fear because they are supernatural in presence. They're supernatural beings. But more than that, as soon as he saw the angel, he would have known that the angel had a message from God. And who knows what God's going to say. It's been 500 years since God's angels have appeared. And it's been over 400 years since God has said anything. And so I think there's a great reason. These are reasons why Zechariah was greatly troubled by this as he awaited to hear what the angel was going to say. And I think for us, we have to remember that all of this is serving as a precursor to Jesus' ministry, showing every bit of this, how God is orchestrating all of the events and purposes for his glory. And, and guess what, believer? Let me say this. This hasn't stopped. God continues to work and move in your life and in my life, in our lives, through the good and the bad, through the terrible and the glorious. God continues to work and to move sovereignly, moving all things after the, for, for his glory and after the counsel of his own will, for God's honor and God's praise. And as we grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, we can appreciate and understand God's divine purposes and plans better in our lives. The old saying, hindsight's always twenty twenty. I, I don't think is, is, is certainly not wrong. As we look back upon our lives and as we see God's work, even in our own midst, we can say, wow, wow. didn't see that at the time, but look at what God has done. And Jesus is going to be revealed here, as we'll see as we go through Luke chapter 1. But there's a last thing I want you to see, and that's found in verses 13 through 17, and that's the angel's message the angel's message to the man of God. The angel of God has a message for the man of God. And this is what he says. He says, man of God, do not be afraid. Now, this is interesting. You say, well, why, why is this interesting? Well, do you know how many times in the Bible the phrase, do not be afraid, is mentioned? I did not put it in my notes. I don't know why I had it to be put in my notes. I forgot, but let me just say it this way. It's a lot. 
It's a lot. It's a lot. God has told everyone from Abraham to to Jacob to you name it, down throughout the history, um, God has said over into Joshua, um, on and on, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. And it's interesting that, that Luke records for us here that this is the first word spoken to Zechariah the prophet. He doesn't say, hey, Zechariah, I've got a message for you. What is he saying? He says, Zechariah, do not be afraid. In contrast to Zechariah's fear at seeing the angel standing beside the altar of incense, the angel initiates this conversation. And notice, it's the angel who initiates the conversation. It's not Zechariah. Zechariah doesn't say, uh, excuse me, nobody's supposed to be in here, so like, what are you doing in here? Or, uh, this is pretty terrifying, I don't know who you are or what you want, but can you please just tell me? Zechariah is sitting there awestruck and terrified. It is the angel who speaks first. It is the angel who says, Zechariah, got a message, but do not be terrified. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. And it's meant to provide comfort and assurance that his intentions are good. And what is it that, that, that the angel tells Zechariah? He says, Zechariah, and he calls him by name at this point. He says, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Now, which prayer? If you were in the moment, you would think, well, okay, great. God has heard my prayer for God's people, and he's appeared and he said, hey, this is great. But the angel very quickly puts Zechariah in a broader mindset by saying, you're going to have a son. God has heard Elizabeth and Zechariah's prayer. And by addressing him by name, the angel establishes that this message has come directly from God, directly to Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. In other words, you have been praying and praying, and perhaps even at this point in time, Zechariah and Elizabeth, knowing that their time was far spent and advanced in years, perhaps perhaps these prayers had gone had ceased to even be prayed. But God had heard their prayers. And he says, and your wife Elizabeth, again, he calls her by name, will bear you a son. And in this, what happens? They show forth Abraham and Sarah and giving them a promise of a son well advanced in years, a man by the name of John. Now notice this. Notice the importance of this. The importance of this is found in the fact that that it it is by tradition the right of the father to name the child. By Jewish tradition, the father had every right. But here, what does the angel say? You're going to call him John. Literally, Yahweh has been gracious. The Lord has been gracious. And he goes on, he says, and as a result, he's going to have an impact on many people. He's going to, there's going to be joy and gladness, not only your joy and gladness, but also the nation's joy and gladness. How do we know this? Well, if you look back at verse 14 here, 
He says, and you shall have joy and gladness, and many shall rejoice at his birth. Do you notice the phrasing there of this, of this verse? He actually uses a different, different understandings here for these, these words joy and gladness. He actually has the understanding. The first set of joy and gladness that he uses actually comes in the context of personal happiness and delight. But the second one is actually set within the context of the broader redemptive and historical understanding of the people of God. Not only will you be joyous, not only will you be happy, Zechariah, not only will your wife be happy, Zechariah, but the people of God are going to rejoice because I have finally heard your prayers, but also by proxy their prayers. And they're going to rejoice and they're going to rejoice for all the right reasons. While Zechariah and Elizabeth are going to rejoice because God has finally answered their prayers and given them a son, the people of God are going to rejoice because God has finally spoken and acted in their favor. And yet, in all of this, John is going to enjoy a special relationship with God. Isn't that what it says here in verse 15? For he shall be great in the sight of the Lord, and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink, and he shall be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. You say, well, okay, well, he's not going to drink. That's good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But though this is not mentioned, what is this? This is the Nazarite vow. You say, well, what do you mean by that? Well, if you have to, re you remember the Nazarite vow signified a couple different things. And, and we know of a couple, right? We know of Samson. We know of Samuel, the prophet, the judge. But here, John. And all three of these, by the way, equally had been set apart by God before their birth. And there's, there's, there's an idea of being consecrated to the Lord. So there's consecration to the Lord, right? The Nazarite vow was a voluntary act, dedicating one's life to God. Generally, here though, it's not the case. God says, no, no, this is mine. This is my son. This is the son that I have chosen. Right? This, is, this, is, this is the son that I have chosen. This is your son that I have chosen him. And it required all kinds of things, purity and holiness, separation from, from the world, that is worldliness, right? So greed and, and other things, self-seeking, discipline and self-control, mirroring the role of the Israelites ultimately in his life and, and, and ultimately prophetically, like Samson and Samuel before him, he was dedicated to a lifelong, a lifelong ministry that ultimately would point others to Christ. And in all of this, what does he say? What does the angel say in verses 16 and 17? In all of this, he's going to do a couple of different things. One, he's going to prepare the people of Israel for Jesus' ministry by doing what? Well, first, by turning many to God. That is, he's going to preach repentance and a call for them to turn from their sin and to live a righteous and holy life. He's going to call them to be baptized. He's going to call them to confess their sins He's going to call them, which was unheard of for the nation of Israel. Well, you know, the sacrifices, they, they purify us once a year. I don't have any sins. But John comes in a different spirit. And he says, oh, yes, you do. And the blood of bulls and goats are no longer satisfactory. But then it says that he's going to come in the spirit of Elijah. As a matter of fact, he says in verse 17, he shall go before him in the spirit of and power of Elijah. And this is really, there was a very confusing opportunity here early on in John the Baptist's ministry because there were people that were the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes and all these people were coming to him, hey, are you the prophet? Hey, are you Elijah? And John says, well, no. 
And so they were confused. But notice what he means here by acting, but but he's coming in the spirit and the power of Elijah. What is he talking about? Well, he was the prophet promised and prophesied in Malachi 4, 5, and 6 that would come in the spirit and the power of Elijah, although many had misinterpreted this to mean that Elijah was going to come back from heaven. But he preached like like Elijah repentance and called people to prepare for the coming of, of, of the Messiah. He wore the clothing just like Elijah wore in 2 Kings 1, 8. He was a prophet who came in the spirit and power of Elijah, right? So, so in other words, with the same spirit and the power that Elijah had, John had. He preached repentance, called people to prepare, right, for the coming of the Messiah. But he also, he also wore clothing, oh, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, he wore clothing. But then he confronted, he confronted King Ahab for his, Elijah confronted King Ahab for his wickedness. But John the Baptist would actually go on to confront King Herod Antipas for his wickedness. And unlike Elijah, John would actually pay with his life. But he would also turn reconciliation, call for reconciliation and repentance among God's family, God's people, by turning disobedient hearts toward righteousness and creating the path for the Lord's appearance. That's ultimately what we're told here in the very end of verse 17, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. So how do we, how do we let's, let's apply this and then we're done. So how do we apply all this? Well, I think for those of us who are in Christ, I think first and foremost, we need to remember that we are powerfully reminded in this time that we must trust God and his timing. Zechariah and Elizabeth were advanced in years and in age and by all accounts could never have done this. And yet God is the one who has not forgotten his promises and he fulfills his promises. You and I, as God's people, must trust his timing and appreciate that he understands our needs better than even we do. And his timing is perfect. And yet in the midst of all this, we would say, well, is my faith have to be great? Well, as we'll see next week, the answer to that is faith even occurs amidst of doubt and unbelief. You say, what do you mean? Well, I mean, Zechariah doesn't ultimately say, all righty then, let's do this thing. No, no, he says, um, are you sure? And how can you give me a sign to make sure that you're sure? Faith amidst of doubt. And yet in the midst of all of it, despite his lackluster faith, he still trusted the Lord. Despite his faith that was riddled with all kinds of doubt, he still trusted the Lord. Zechariah trusted the Lord. And I think in all of this, we are reminded of the ministry of John the Baptist because it paves the way ultimately for Christ. And Jesus' call is no different, just to repent and to believe the gospel. John's purpose was to call the people to repentance and to to prepare their hearts for Jesus' arrival. Jesus arrives on the scene and calls them to repentance and belief in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And our own calling is to call for sinners to repent and to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. As Christians, we're called to spread the good news of Jesus Christ. We're called to call others to repent of their sins and to turn to faith in Christ. We're called to call sinners who don't know Christ to turn away from their self-righteousness, away from their their good works, and to repent and believe, to turn away from their sin and believe that Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone can cleanse them from their sins and make them right with God through faith alone in Christ alone. But as a result then of us who who baptize those who believe, the believing ones, 
then we continue to disciple those who believe. And I would say this, I would close with this. Those of you who may be here this morning who do not know Christ, God calls you to turn away from your sin, to trust away from, not to trust in your own ways or your own thoughts about salvation or even thoughts about him, but to turn to Christ, to look to Christ Jesus who died upon the cross, who lived righteously for your, for, who lived righteously on our behalf, who died in our stead, who he who gave his life for us, look to him and believe. Your salvation can only come through faith alone in Christ alone and his finished work upon the cross. Turn away from your self-righteousness and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And Christian, let me just add this to you. Stop trying to make God like you. Trust and look to Christ. Believe in him and let your righteousness flow from him. And let the power of God be at work in you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your work and power on upon our, uh, uh, for us. And thank you for the promise ultimately we see this morning in the text of the fact that John paved the way in the, the, even in the midst of, of imperfect faith of his father Zechariah. The promise was still given and the promise will be fulfilled as we'll see over the coming weeks. God, we thank you that you are in the midst working and moving, even when it doesn't seem like you are, even in the midst of, of it all where it seems as if and it feels as if you've abandoned us. God, we thank you that your work is perfect and you have not forgotten us. You have not abandoned us. You have not forsaken us. And we're reminded of every moment that we look upon Christ, of your glorious and good work on our behalf. So help us to look to Christ, trust in Christ, and go and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to a world who needs the gospel. And we pray this.